Hello folks, welcome to Wargaming Month here on The Napoleon Assist. A very quick reminder, smack the like button, remember to subscribe so you can find your way back, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It'll take you a few seconds of your time, it'll make a massive difference to me and my ability to reach a wider audience with the, the details of the work of my fantastic guests. If you are willing to go just a tiny bit further and dig into your own pocket, and believe me, I completely understand if you're not up for that, you can do so in two ways. You can become a regular supporter via Patreon, different perks in each tier. Check the link in the description for more details on that. Or if a regular subscription isn't your thing, you can leave one-off tips via Ko-fi. Again, the link is in the episode description. Whatever support you're able to offer, as you know, I am massively grateful and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the Napoleon Assist and another instalment of Wargaming Month. Today we're going to keep exploring the genre and take it in a slightly different direction. We're looking at the different sort of variations that you get when it comes to the world of wargaming. So we'll look at board games in a future episode. There's a whole sub-series over on the YouTube channel, which is looking at the digital war game, as I'm joined by Josh Proven to talk about Napoleon Total War. But today we're going to delve into the world of miniatures. How could we not? You know, there's nothing, in my mind at least, that captures the essence of wargaming than those little plastic figures, sometimes beautifully painted, in my case, most definitely not beautifully painted, and the whole kind of world of rule sets and landscapes and so on that kind of coalesces around that. To help me understand all of this, I am joined by Chris Pramus, who's a nine, who's a 29-year veteran of the tabletop game industry. He is the founder and president of Green Ronin Publishing, now in its 22nd year. He's been playing miniature war games since the early 80s and was a founding member of Wizards of the Coast Miniatures Division at the turn of the century. He co-designed its Dungeons and Dragons chainmail game and created its fantasy setting on top of it all. And he's also written three books for Osprey Publishing, which frankly is a hell of a CV on type, just kind of running through it all. Chris, welcome to the Napoleon Assist. Great to see you. How are you doing? Hello. Uh, it is a pleasure to be here. Um, I'm doing all right. You know, just trying to um, keep on keeping on with the world being uh, increasingly challenging, shall we say? <laughs> It, it doesn't seem to get any easier, does it? Um, there are many memes that circulate over each new year about, okay, maybe we can just kind of get the year right this time and do things properly, and it just all goes to hell very rapidly. Let's start yes. with this Wargaming Malarkey with you, um, as I have done with all of my guests, because this is a personal route in for many people. So, you know, what was yours? How did you become submerged in the world of miniatures wargaming? Uh, well, so I've always liked history for starters. And, uh, you know, when I was a lad, you know, I would watch old movies on my black and white TV in the 70s. Um, and that's where I first saw stuff like the Waterloo movie and um, To Helen Back, which was Audie Murphy's autobiographical World War II movie and Zulu, um, things like that you know, that uh, kind of stoked my interest um, in military history. Um, and then uh, 
I don't know, 76, 77, something like that, I started to collect sets of Airfix miniatures, like many. Um, and I had no notion of gaming with them. Like, you know, I would set them up, you know, do the sort of like battles that kids do with them. Um, but, you know, I had no notion that there was like rules <laughs> uh, and games that you could play with them. Um, so then when I was 10, um, uh, basically two important things happened in my life. Uh, first, I read Lord of the Rings and second, I got into Dungeons and Dragons um, and D&D uh, &D was kind of my gateway uh, into uh, what are variously called hobby games, adventure games, and um, tabletop games now to differentiate from computer games. Um, so uh, I started with that. And uh, at the time, miniatures were an extremely important accessory for D&D. When you go into stores, um, there'd be miniatures from like Grenadier and Ralph Partha and Heritage, you know, just hanging right there with the D&D stuff. Um, and you use them to uh, to run your encounters so you could see where everyone was and da, da, da. you know, I mean, a mini war game, essentially, when you were in combat. Um, and I just thought miniatures were like the best damn thing. It's like, oh, man, <laughs> these are so cool. I love these. Um, so I started collecting those and um, uh, D&D was like a, a bridge for me. I started to subscribe to Dragon Magazine um, and it later became kind of a house organ for D&D, but back at that time, it still covered like a variety of games. And so that's what introduced me um, to the larger concept of miniatures games. It's how I learned about Avalon Hill board war games and that whole scene and got into doing that stuff. Um, and eventually, TSR published a game called Battle System, which was basically the Dungeons and Dragons miniatures game. Um, and uh, what nice thing about it was that it came with cardboard counters. Um, so if you didn't have a miniatures force, you could try the game just using the counters on the kitchen floor, which is what I did. Um, <laughs> so, you know, that was really when it was like, oh yeah, like, <laughs> miniatures gaming. I, I want to do more of this. Um, so um, when I was in college, uh, I started playing Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. Uh, and that tied into Games Workshop's Warhammer Fantasy Battle game. And in some of the role-playing scenarios, they would say, if you want to do this big fight in a castle with our miniatures game, here's how to do that. And so we did that. Um, you know, my friends and I, when we were playing through uh, these campaigns and things, and that that was basically when the hook was really in. Um, <laughs> so uh, it took me till the 90s to really get into historical miniatures games. Um, I was also going to grad school then, where I my plan was to get a PhD, become a historian, you know, become a professor, that kind of stuff. Uh, but I started to do freelance writing um, for role-playing games. And, you know, when you're like, oh, I need to do this paper for school, or I could write this gaming thing, which is not only fun, but pays me, like, that, that kind of won out in the end. And that's how I started my career. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's my long route forward. Uh, I will also give a shout out to a book called Epic Land Battles, which I got when 
I don't know, I was 11 years old, something like that. Uh, it was one of those big oversized history books that you see um, that has lots of like period pictures and maps and so on. Um, and that book ran from like Yorktown to, um, to Kursk, I think. Uh, but amongst the battles covered was both Austerlitz uh, and Waterloo. And that was really the first um, time that I was like read in detail about a Napoleonic battle, looked at the maps, you know, all that kind of stuff. So it's also a, a good influence. I can fully understand the temptation to go and write things that actually you get paid for. Yeah. Um, because as I whine about very often on this podcast, you know, history does not pay well. Love it though we do. Um, we do not do it to get rich quickly because that, that's not the name of the game when it comes to uh, this business. There's a lot for us to get our head around here, isn't there, in the world yeah. of, of miniature games? Because there are a number of different rule sets, uh, possibly too many for us to go through in their entirety. But talk us through how some of the, the headliners, shall we say, kind of work and how do they vary in terms of the way in which they try to recreate an environment that, as we've discussed in other shows, you know, it's very hard. Mm -hmm. it's, well, it's impossible to create an actual battle and you wouldn't really want to create an actual battle. You're trying to create something that's fun. So how do they yeah. try and inject a flavour of this period into what's being played out on the tabletop? All right. Uh, well, first, quick note game industry actually pays terribly so that was you know maybe the joke was on me in the long run but um <laughs> anyway so uh miniatures games uh so i mean napoleonic ones in particular like there are just literally hundreds of them you know like whenever i'm at a convention and i'm looking like in the bring in by area i'll be like oh look it's like four other napoleonic games from the 70s i've never heard of you know so uh the choices are vast um so uh, basically, there, there's a lot of things that you need to decide, uh, like before you're going to get into one and rules have different ways of treating things. So like a fundamental part of it is like, what type of engagement are you interested in simulating? Um, so you can do anything from a skirmish game with like a dozen miniatures representing one guy per miniature um, up to the grand tactical where you know one miniature could represent you know 120 or more um, guys and uh, you know your maneuver elements are going to be different depending uh, could be a company could be a battalion you know um, so you first should decide like what what it is that you want out of the game and that helps narrow down the games that are going to be available to you. Um, and so uh, essentially, you got to find the right kind of game for yourself. Uh, and you need to decide on a miniature scale. And so some games are very specific, like this is for 28 millimeter miniatures or 15 or what have you. Um, but like, there's so many different miniature scales. And so uh, many rules are also like, well, if you want to play in six millimeter or 10 millimeter, like here's how to convert things and, you know, what have you. So um, before you start collecting, you kind of need to have a sense of that, which means finding the rules that are, are going to work with your budget and, and all that stuff. So in uh, nearly any miniatures game, there's a bunch of things that you want to simulate. Um, so at a fundamental level, 
you want to uh, know how to move your miniatures on the table. Uh, you want to know how they can fire their weapons. You want to know how they can engage in hand-to-hand -hand combat. And then you want to deal with morale um, in some way, you know, because there's a tendency when playing miniatures games to just keep playing until one side is just absolutely demolished. But that's not how battles usually are, right? Like if you take 25% casualties across your army, chances are, you know, you're going to hoof it at that point. Um, so, and then some games, uh, particularly Napoleonic ones, you know, command is also an important part of it. Um, you know, do you have sub-generals? How are you commanding the units and that kind of stuff? So basically, like those are all kind of dials and different games approach every one of those things in a different way. And the complexity of the games goes from um, extremely simple to like mind-bogglingly complex. <laughs> so, uh, you know, there's there's some research involved. Each game will have like a turn structure, which tells you like basically an order of operations. You know, what do you do first? And uh, these days it's typically like move, shoot, assault that happens in many games. Uh, but some games do it differently. Um, you know, some games will let you, um, you know, fire first and then move. Um, and, you know, it really depends on the, the designer's intent. So there, there's a lot of moving parts, I guess, is, uh, <laughs> is sort of what I'm trying to say. Um, and uh, so you, um, you just need to find your entry point. Um, and I can get into specific games at some point if you want to. Yeah, well, let's go for that. You know, what are, what are the big names out there? I mean, we've talked on the uh, greatest inverted commas debate on Wargaming's about um, Black Seas, part of the sort of the Black Powder mm -hmm. franchise, but there are plenty of others out there. So just talk us through some of the key players. Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, like if you're just getting into it, a very useful book that I recommend is called Napoleonic Wargaming by Neil Thomas. Um, it's pretty widely available. Um, you can get it off Amazon, things like that. Um, and uh, it's an introduction to Napoleonic miniatures gaming. And what's nice about it is, you know, it, it kind of gives you a little potted history of the conflict, but then, you know, there's chapters about the strategy and tactics of the period, just so you like kind of know what you're gonna simulate. Um, and then there's a pretty simple set of rules in it as well, where like the rule section is eight pages. So um, it's, it's not that difficult to grasp. And then there's a bunch of supporting material and a nice bibliography, which doesn't just list games and books, but actually comments on them. Like, this is why this is useful. And, you know, so it's a nice starting point to get yourself into the period. Um, and then, uh, you know, if you decide that that's a good level of complexity for you, well, you you can just play that. Uh, but if you want to get deeper into it, then there, there's lots of choices. Um, so um, you mentioned Black Powder, which is one of the big dogs. That's from Warlord Games. Um, uh, you should get their, the core book of this game pretty much, I think, regardless, because it is so beautiful. <laughs> it's, um, you know, a big aspect of miniatures gaming is like the spectacle of it all. Um, and, uh, you know, the Warlord people are largely ex-Games Workshop folks. Um, and so uh, their whole, the whole thing they want to do was like recreate big battles with tons of miniatures on big tables. And so 
uh, you know, it's full of pictures of these just gorgeous boards, beautifully painted miniatures, you know, and if you want to understand, like, what's the attraction to this hobby, like, just page through black powder, and you'd be like, oh, <laughs> I see. <laughs> um, and the rules are, are pretty easy to get into. Um, so, um, right. So beyond that, um, there's a whole group um, of what are called, like, large-scale skirmish games. Um, these are games that generally require like only 50 miniatures per person instead of potentially hundreds and hundreds um, if you're going to do a, a bigger scale game. Um, so a uh, popular one is called Sharp Practice. Uh, that is from Two Fat Lardies. Um, the uh, limitation of that one is that the, the lists in the book only cover the Peninsular War. So if you want to game that, it's great. Um, uh, I presumably there's going to be a supplement with more army lists, but I haven't seen it. Um, so but that, that is sort of the model. You publish a core game and then you provide specialized supplements about different armies or campaigns or what have you. Uh, more recently, um, there's a game from Studio Tomahawk called Shakos and Bayonets. Um, this is actually a supplement for one of their core games, which is called Muskets and Tomahawks. And as the name indicates, that was originally designed as like a French and Indian War slash American War of Independence game. Uh, but in the second edition, they kind of broadened it out to the black powder period in general. So Shakos and Bayonets is the book that gives you all the, the Napoleonic details about that. Um, I've played a bunch of Muskets and Tomahawks. Uh, I've only had a chance to play Shakos and Bayonets once uh, at a convention last year. Um, so, um, but anyway, you know, they, so you know, Tomahawk, they, they do nice games. They also do Saga for, uh, for medieval stuff, which is great. Then um, Osprey, they have a series of these blue covered uh, shorter miniatures games, generally like 64 to maybe 96 pages. Also kind of a nice entry point because they're, first of all, they're cheap. You can get them for $20 or less. And, um, you know, secondly, they don't tend to be like extremely complex. Um, so they did one a few years ago called Chosen Men, which I'm sure you can't possibly imagine what the inspiration for that title was. <laughs> I am completely flummoxed. What could it be related to? I know. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, that is a uh, similar sort of scale um, to those uh, other games. Um, and its force lists, they cover the Peninsula War and the Hundred Days, um, but not beyond that. Um, you'll, you'll notice amongst the British miniatures companies, of which there are many, um, of course, they tend to favor those two campaigns <laughs> for obvious reasons. Um, uh, other games provide more, you know, more broader support for the major powers, at least. Then you have more like divisional scale games. Um, so General De Brigade is one of them that's from Partisan Press. Um, and then there's an American designer named Stan Mustafa who publishes a series of games called Honor. Um, and each one of them is named after a commander and is about a different conflict or a level of a conflict. So like his American Civil War game is called Longstreet um, and he's got two Napoleonic games. Uh, one is called La Salle uh, and that's um, like a division level game. Um, and, uh, you know, it's medium complexity. 
Um, so, you know, there's, there's more to it than some of the lighter games, but it's not, uh, you know, it's not a bear <laughs> like some of the older games. Um, and then he also does a game called Blucher, uh, which is interesting because you actually don't need miniatures to play it. Um, so uh, it is designed um, uh, basically at a grand tactical level. Um, and you have these unit cards that give you stats for the different units you're gonna have on the board. Um, and they provide all of those for free and they have the footprint of the unit size in the game. So if you want to try it before investing, you know, $1,000 in miniatures, something like that, you could just print out um, those things and play the game with just that. So um, it's, a, it's a nice way to, um, to you know, give a, you know, a pretty um, reasonable grand tactical game a try without uh, a big investment. Um, then there's a bunch of naval games. Um, uh, I think you mentioned uh, Black Sails. Um, and um, I should also mention Sails of Glory from Ares. Um, they are a company that really cracked like air warfare, like particularly World War I stuff um, with a very uh, like innovative movement system. And what was really nice about it is that the the planes came pre-painted. So Sails of Glory is the same concept, um, but it's, uh, you know, Napoleonic um, warships. And so you can buy, um, you know, individual models of all different ships. Usually each model you can, will be like one of two different ships you can play it as. Um, and, you know, you can just get that on the table as soon as you get the ships. So that's nice. Um, as you might expect, like running a ship of the line is a lot more complicated than you know like a one seat fighter so there's there's more to it <laughs> than playing an, an air war game uh but you know it's uh it provides great um you know a great looking game just like right out of the box so uh yeah that, <laughs> that's a little bit of a view of uh of what's going on and there's a hell of a lot going on. So how does it stack up compared to other types of war games in terms of popularity? Uh, so, you know, this has gone through, <laughs> you know, different phases, I guess you'd say. Um, so currently, you know, it's like in historical gaming circles, Napoleonic is kind of, you know, Midland um, because um, rank and file games are a little bit out of favor um, with, uh, with many modern gamers because they seem sort of like antiquated. You know, they'd rather play a skirmish game. You know, World War II has become really popular um, in the last, um, you know, 15-ish years uh, for that and other reasons. But, you know, like there's always been this strong Napoleonic um, part uh, of the audience. Um, the... Um, one challenge is that people who are into Napoleonic games, they're not all, but there's a tendency for them to be older gamers. Um, and so, <laughs> uh, you know, that can be off-putting to people. Um, and, uh, you know, other than the skirmish games and some of the exceptions that I talked about, uh, you know, it's an investment. Um, you Like if you're really gonna do like large scale games, um, then it, it requires, a lot of minis and uh, you know either you painting or hiring a painter um, you know to 
to get things prepared. So, you know, it has, uh, I guess, more hoops than, than many games, um, but there's still always just a fascination with Napoleon Wargaming. So, you know, <laughs> um, it's, it, it has many adherents as well. I don't want to undersell it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, do you get much crossover with the Warhammer crowd? Because um, somebody was telling me fairly recently about, uh, let's call it an unusual game, um, which was half historically based and then half just had random fantasy stuff like zombies thrown in, um, which left me really sort of scratching my head. So do you get people who sort of come from the, the Warhammer, whether it be the, um, I'm gonna embarrass myself here with my lack of knowledge, but the, the more um, fantasy-based stuff yeah. or, you know, with the, the whole sort of Space Marines and the 40K yeah. and, and so on. Or do you find that actually there's a, a boundary and, and people sort of either come for this because they are into other types of historical war games or they come to this for the the historical I want to do Napoleonics type of thing. Are, are there distinctions or is it just kind of as with most things a mishmash? Well so with a lot of popular games you have lots of people who get into it decide this is my game and they just don't really stray from that. So a lot of people who play like Warhammer 40k or Warhammer Age of Sigmar these days like that's their game that that's where they're going to play. But um, there are you know a goodly number of people who spend some years in that community, they may even stay in that community, um, but they also want to broaden out, you know, um, and it is a, a not um, uncommon path to start with Warhammer and get into historical games. Uh, I mean, that's what I did. Um, so, um, uh, and part of that comes from the culture of Games Workshop itself. Um, because the, um, you know, the original designers and their staff, you know, definitely through the 80s, uh, and, well, and longer, like they love historical stuff. There's a lot of historical influence on Warhammer Fantasy Battle, which is the, the original Warhammer game, um, you know, where you can see these like miniatures for a fantasy game that are, that are obviously based on historical things. So like, there was an army called the Empire that was like similar to the Holy Roman Empire. Um, and, you know, the core troops of that, they're Lanskinets, right? Like that, <laughs> that's what they are. Um, you'll also find like Polish winged hussars in Warhammer Fantasy Battle. So that influence was always there, but also, you know, like so many of those people came out of historical gaming to start with. Um, so as those folks have retired, many of them have gone over to the historical side for publishing and for making miniatures. Um, and so that's where you have like the Perry twins with their company, Perry Miniatures and Warlord Games, which I mentioned. Like the Perrys are <laughs> uh, one of a kind, I guess you'd say, like they've probably sculpted more miniatures than anyone like ever. Uh, just thousands and thousands of thousands, you know, first for Games Workshop. And then with Perry, they went into the uh, the historical stuff. Um, and, you know, they've got a huge range of Napoleonics, lots of different historical stuff, uh, both pewter and plastic kits. And because they're just like keen students of military history, and because they have the skills to just sculpt whatever they want, they will pick some obscure historical conflicts like the Carlist War, 
in Spain in the 19th century, which I had never heard anyone wargaming before until they were like, hey, here's a range of miniatures for that, you know. Um, so, uh, you know, people who follow Games Workshop for a long time, like they, they know these people and then when they see what they're doing, it's easier to follow. Uh, also with Warlord and Black Powder specifically, like its rules are descended from a Games Workshop game called War Master, which was a smaller, well, smaller miniatures, but bigger scale uh, Warhammer fantasy battle game that has then spun off a bunch of other um, historical games like War Master Ancients, a uh, whole series of World War II games from a different publisher and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, so, you know, if you've played some, you know, if you've played War Master, it's easy to pick up Black Powder, for example. And what are people looking for when it comes to the war game? Is this just about entertainment? I, I'm always very conscious that it's easy to over-historicize things. And, you know, my job is to focus on the history and, mm -hmm. you know, dispel the myths and all the rest of it which therefore means that it's very important to park that perspective when you come to entertainment. And yes, you can turn around and pick holes in a film. And yes, you can turn around and say that a novel's not quite right. And you can sort of turn around to a war game and say, well, look, there are issues here. But the fact remains that these things are designed first and foremost to entertain. So do you get people for whom it's purely about entertainment? Are people looking for something sort of semi-historical because they want, they, they've got an interest, but they want to develop it further. They want to get a little bit of a feel for it. Or is actually realism something that's seen as key? Bearing in mind, you know, kind of part of the joy of this, and I do mean joy, is to spend your hours with your delicate little paintbrushes, mm -hmm. making sure that you get the braiding right and that you get the little kind of finesses on uniform cuffs and, and so on. Absolutely right. So do you see sort of camps within the historical wargaming community or do people just go mm, you know whatever what what, what are they yeah. what are they looking for uh well so yeah i mean it varies uh, i mean everyone to some degree is interested in the history obviously or they, they, they wouldn't be there in the first place um but uh you know there is a a through line in you know most game design you know across um different sorts of games uh of realism versus playability um, so in the seventies, there was like a big move in realism in miniatures games. Um, and things got really complex in there because they were trying to get so granular, you know, in the games that it just led to increasing complexity, which led to longer games and a bigger time commitment, you know, at a certain point, you know, depending on the person, it's just a loss of fun. You know, when it's like, well, great, we're very accurately simulating <laughs> something here, but oh, oops, it's not fun. Um, so, uh, but you know, it's like a sliding scale. So there are very much people who, you know, they want everything like as exact as they can make it. Um, and other people, you know, are, are looser about such things. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, it's like, particularly when you're making an army, um, a lot of people, you know, they want to generally have like a historical army. So like, I want a French Napoleonic army. Um, and uh, they're not necessarily looking for, I want to make units from like this core in this campaign and these specific units. Um, they just want a force that will generally work, 
you know, um, in as many campaigns as possible. So in any given battle, like the, the you know, the facing or, you know, <laughs> the uniform details won't necessarily be accurate to the units that were there, but they don't care. But other people really do. <laughs> so, um, and, you know, it's definitely true that there are people who will be extremely judgmental to you, uh, you know, if you do not have those details correct. So. <laughs> this is not something that surprises me in the slightest. Yeah. Let's go back to talk a little bit about the history of the war game genre and kind of the link with Napoleonics. You know, I'm very conscious that 1970 Waterloo, I believe it's 1970, Waterloo comes out. Um, and then there's this sort of explosion in interest in Napoleonics. You know, it's, I don't think it's an accident that Airfix suddenly bring out a Waterloo Mm -hmm. Airfix set, you know, that's just a very, very savvy marketing move. Does that therefore help with the growth of miniatures as a wargaming hobby? How are the two linked? Um, well, so yeah, I mean, Waterloo certainly um, got many people into wargaming. I mean, I, I mean, I remember watching it when I was young, right? And there's there's all those scenes in the movie where they'll show like Rod Steiger as Napoleon. And he's he's talking like like you might at a war game table where he's like, oh, I see Wellington has you know sent in his heavy horsemen. I will counter with my Polish lancers and you know this kind of stuff. It's a very short step from that into ooh, how can I do that? You know, and that's hey miniatures games. Um, so, but the um, the Napoleonic side of uh, of modern miniatures games. Uh, was really in there from the start back in the 50s. Um, so I'm sure probably some of your other guests have talked about kind of the, the origin of wargaming going back to like the Prussian general staff, you know, in the early 1800s and all that kind of stuff. And there's a professional side of wargaming, you know, that, that just continues to the present day where people, people wargame out actual war. Um, and that's different. So, you know, what started in the 50s was the idea of just wargaming and not for soldiers who, you know, need to learn to make war, but people who just wanted to recreate history, have a fun game and, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, so what we call hobby gaming really started in the 50s. Um, the first like hobby game uh, was called Tactics. Um, it was a board game from a guy named Charles S. Roberts. Um, he founded the company that would become Avalon Hill, and then they were a leader in board wargaming, you know, for decades um, till Hasbro bought them. Um, and so, uh, but right around that same time, um, the, the beginnings of, like, uh, of miniatures gaming were happening. And, um, uh, at the time, they used like the classic 54 millimeter size toy soldiers that you would get from like Britons primarily, um, and which are big, you know, uh, and they also could be stendy, but they were essentially playing variants of H.G. Wells game Little Wars from 1913, um, which is a great milestone in like popular wargaming, um, but it, it had limitations, like the only way you could shoot an enemy miniature 
was by taking a 4.7 inch naval gun that they produced that actually shot wooden dowels. And so, you, you know, in Little Wars, you fire those and you have to hit and knock over enemies to cause casualties. Um, so, you know, if you're a painter, say, you're like, oh my God, like, <laughs> no, you can't knock over my beautifully painted miniatures with a wooden dowel. Um, you'll chip the paintwork, man. What was the designer right? thinking? <laughs> yeah. But, you know, the other weird thing about Little Wars is, um, even though it's like commonly Napoleonics that people would play with it, um, all those musket armed troops never actually got to fire. Um, they could engage in melee, uh, but they didn't actually ever shoot their muskets, which obviously is problematic if you're trying to do uh, you know, Napoleonic gaming. So in the 50s, people kind of started with little wars and, and began coming up with just all sorts of variants. Um, and trying to add more realism and, and all this and that. Um, and so there were like key developments in both the United States and in the UK. Uh, UK um, was a little more organized in that um, there was a, like a wargaming section to the British Model Soldier Society. And they had a publication called the Bulletin and sometimes wargame articles would appear in there. Um, but in America, there, there wasn't that sort of structure. Um, so we had a guy named Jack Scrooby who would become like a key figure in all this. Um, and he, um, he basically started meeting other people who were wargaming through like collector shows and that kind of stuff. Um, and then, uh, you know, looking at the problem of these larger miniatures where it's like, I want to do a big battle, but these Britain's miniatures are big and you can't get that many on the table. Like there's pictures of HG Wells in his parlor, you know, with hundreds and hundreds of these Britain's figures where it's like, well, guess what? Most people don't have a parlor the size of HG Wells. <laughs> so it's, it's not that realistic. Um, so Scrooby started making his own miniatures uh, that were 30 millimeters in height because you could just get more of them on the table. Um, and uh, he also, uh, because people were always asking him, you know, like, what do I do with rules? Um, he published a pamphlet. It's like a 16 page pamphlet called All About War Games. That was basically like, here's how you war game. Um, but it wasn't like, these are my defined rules. It was like, here's four ways to do movements. You know, here's, here's multiple ways to do combat. And your job is basically like, you know, mix and match the stuff you like and use this as a basis for designing your, your own war game that suits your taste. Um, uh, and then the 1957, like all this stuff happened with Scrooby. The other big thing they did was start a publication called um, War Games Digest. Uh, and that was was really the first like miniatures gaming focused publication, and its initial subscriber list was literally like forty people. But amongst those forty people were you know names that would later become very recognizable uh, as miniatures war games developed. So you know Donald Featherstone, Tony Bath, Joe Morshauser, you know uh, Larry Brom, um, you know they were all early subscribers, and that gave the wargaming community on both sides of the pond, like a place where they could share ideas and, uh, and interact. Um, and after a couple of years, um, Featherstone and Bath 
began to edit two of the four issues a year. So it would alternate basically being like American team, UK team, you know, and so on. It was a lot, <laughs> so quite, quite a lot that was happening there in the late 50s. Um, and, uh, and Napoleonics was really always like a very popular period, um, you know, for a variety of reasons. Like, you know, one important thing is like, Napoleonic Wars, you had three like co-equal branches, right? You've got infantry, cavalry, artillery, you know, and there's there isn't really a primacy amongst them. So you have a lot of good interactions like that. You know, there's no machine guns on the board or anything like that. Um, the uniforms, you know, let's be honest, a lot of miniatures is about visual spectacle. Um, so, you know, people love to see, you know, hundreds of minis on a table. Um, and um, I think part of it also had to do with the fact that these, almost all of these guys served in World War II. So like Donald Featherstone, you know, he was in a tank regiment in North Africa. Uh, Joe Morshauser is an American designer. He um, was part of the crew of a flame tank in the Pacific Islands campaigns. So you can imagine the horrific stuff that you might've seen firing jets of liquid fuel into caves full of Japanese soldiers, right? So I think Napoleonics were also like um, a, a safe and distant war, you know, which of course like was horrific in different ways, but you know, it wasn't gonna remind them of their recent experiences. <laughs> Just, I mean, not to say that they didn't do World War II war gaming, like they did that as well, but I think, um, you know, it, it's nice to just kind of get away with, you know, get away from horrors you may have seen yourself uh, in, in recent times. Um, so yeah, um, from there, um, uh, things developed with just lots more games. Um, there is a, a true game industry character uh, from Ohio named Duke Seyfried. Um, and Duke was like super into Napoleonics. Um, he published a game called Melee in 1960, uh, which was like was one of the first games to try to get in like a little more realism, a little more period tactics and that kind of stuff. Um, and in like 62, 63, like in Dayton, he was running Napoleonic games uh, with like 8,000 miniatures on enormous tables, <laughs> you know? Wow. Uh, yeah, it's, it's bananas. Um, but like Duke, he wasn't just like, I like war games. He was um, like a, an innovator, a raconteur, you know, somebody who really like was important in selling the idea of miniatures games to, to people. Um, and so um, he did stuff like spend a couple years, like just living out of a, an RV going from store to store and putting on like demonstration games. Um, He's the guy who first packaged like a complete unit in a single box or, you know, plastic clamshell. So you could just be like, ah, you know, like here's a company, boom. Um, he coined the term adventure gaming, you know, that, that was him. Um, and uh, he had a company called Heritage Miniatures, did historical and fantasy. Some of my very first miniatures were heritage fantasy miniatures. So, you know, um, important dude, endlessly enthusiastic, real promoter of Napoleonic stuff. Um, but then uh, I guess the most important developments were in the 60s, 
uh, you start to see the publication of like actual, you know, respectable looking books <laughs> about wargaming. Um, so two of them came out in 1962. Um, so you had uh, Donald Featherstone's War Games, uh, which is, you know, seminal book, uh, you know, still often talked about and pointed to. Um, it covered three different periods. One of them was horse and musket with, you know, uh, a focus on Napoleonic stuff. Um, and then uh, across the pond, Joe Morshauser uh, did a book called uh, How to Play War Games and Miniatures, excuse me, uh, which was similar in that they were introductions to the whole hobby um, and, uh, and also had some uh, rules in them as well. So that's really the point where wargaming became like more of a business in the 50s. It was like almost embarrassing to commercialize your hobby. Like it was generally the expectation that you were going to design your own game. And if you went to a friend's house to play a game, you'd play his rules. If he came to your house, <laughs> you know, you'd play, you'd play your rules. Um, so they didn't, like, they didn't even name their rules. Like when I was first getting into researching this stuff, people would be like, oh yes, we played Tony Bath's Ancients Rules in the 60s. And I'd be like, cool, let me look those up. What are they called? They didn't have a name. They were just Tony Bass rules. <laughs> so, anyway, so all throughout the 60s, you know, Napoleonic gaming uh, was very important um, to miniatures games as a whole, helped it grow. Um, and then uh, in the 70s, um, there was a lot more competition on the ancients side of things. Um, there was a big move to making ancients games more realistic, uh, largely from a company called War Games Research Group. They had a whole tournament scene and, and all this kind of stuff. But still, you know, Napoleonic games kept going. So um, obviously, this is a huge amount of history. I can't <laughs> summarize it in 10 minutes, but, you know, I think you get the idea. Absolutely. Um, is it fair to say that something went wrong to lead to? some kind of a decline my sense and this is just my sense is that certainly the war gaming historical war gaming as mm -hmm. opposed to uh, fantasy war gaming isn't something that um, certainly pre-pandemic was seen as, as mainstream certainly during my um, adolescence the focus was on 40k particularly mm -hmm. warhammer 40k uh, maybe Lord of the Rings based off of the films that came out um, courtesy of uh, Peter Jackson um, and so the, the focus was there rather than on the Napoleonics had I known as a 14 year old that you could paint Napoleonic figures mm -hmm. I might have just died of excitement um, <laughs> so you know is it fair to say that there was some kind of decline and equally has there been a, a re revival as people sort of rediscovered the joys of this hobby during the pandemic. And I'm thinking that, you know, a lot of people went to airfix kits, uh, mm -hmm. other forms of model making in the pandemic. I was certainly one of them. Um, so, you know, is it fair to say that there was originally a decline? And if so, what's the, the cause of that? And then, you know, conversely, what's the revival been like? Uh, okay, again, big topic. Um, so one thing to understand about um, the hobby game industry is that it does have these like larger cycles um, where one sort of game becomes more dominant than others. 
Um, and, you know, some types of games go through periods of decline, but then they rise again and, you know, this sort of stuff. So, you know, at the start of, of hobby gaming, there was miniatures wargaming and there was board wargaming. Um, and that was basically it, um, you know, through, um, through the 60s. Um, so, but then um, role-playing games began and they came out of both of those sorts of wargaming, you know, the, um, the uh, Dave Arneson's people in the Twin Cities and Gygax's group in uh, Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, you know, they were all miniatures gamers, um, board wargamers. Um, and the, the roots of role-playing games were in a miniatures game called Chainmail, which came out in 1971. And it was mostly medieval combat but there was an appendix and it was like, hey, like if you want to do fantasy gaming like Lord of the Rings, like here's how you can do that. And here's rules for wizards and monsters and all that kind of stuff. Um, and um, that combined with stuff that Arneson was doing with you know, very small scale um, like incursions um, into uh, like a castle um, or dungeon levels and things like that. You know those, those sort of things like married together and that became Dungeons and Dragons um, and then you know started small you know very small print run uh, but as the 70s went on it became more popular more popular more popular and then war game companies began starting fantasy lines of miniatures as well um, and the the uh, board war gamers and the miniatures people both you know, began to complain somewhat that role-playing was like sucking the air out of the room, you know, and they they saw some decline in those years because the new hotness, you know, was this D&D thing. Um, but then, you know, there, there have been more cycles like that um, following. So, you know, TSR was like king of the, king of the hill for a long time in the 90s, uh, which is the coast, which is here in where I live in Seattle, you know, they invented Magic the Gathering, the very first trading card game. And that became like a wild runaway success. And that contributed to TSR going out of business. And then they were bought by Wizards of the Coast. Um, so uh, when I worked at Wizards of the Coast from 98 to 2002, I started in what was called the TSR product group. And we were the people making role-playing games, you know, within Wizards. Um, so yeah, but then you know at the same time, board games had to come back. Not so much as war games, but you know, uh, more what are called Euro games, and they're you know one of the the uh, more dominant forms of of gaming today. Um, people often will say gaming when they mean board gaming, um, and that's you know big business, um, you know, like big big companies involved, including venture capitalists, which is freaking weird for something that started, you know, as <laughs> an individual hobby. Uh, but there you go. So um, anyway, so there, you know, there was this big move in, in the 70s and 80s towards fantasy stuff and historical gaming did suffer. Um, it became, a, you know, more niche, um, you know, and it carried on with its own conventions and, you know, lots of new games coming out and so on. But, you know, the its popularity like had, had peaked in the 70s, really. Um, but, you know, it's a passionate community. Um, and uh, in the last, I don't know, 25 years, um, you know, like 
things have really changed in the historical gaming scene. Um, it's much easier to get rules and miniatures than it used to be. Um, there have been developments like uh, you know, the introduction of multi-part plastic models into Wargames miniatures. So you can get a box from like Victrix or, uh, or Warlord. Um, it's got, you know, sprues with all sorts of like heads, bodies, weapons, parts. Um, and they're relatively inexpensive and you can pose the models how you like and equip them how you like. So there's a lot of utility to that. So, you know, that was like a game changer. Um, and then, you know, there was efforts made to, uh, to make rules more inviting to new people as well. Um, you know, one big success uh, is a game called Flames of War out of New Zealand, which is a 15 millimeter World War II game. Like that was the game that really popularized World War II as a historical minis um, style. Like, you know, that got into game stores, which was very rare for historical games like at that time. Um, and uh, another contributor was that uh, Games Workshop itself had a division called Warhammer Historical for a while. Um, and that basically started when Jervis Johnson was like, I wonder if I could do Ancients Wargaming using Warhammer Fantasy Battle, but obviously stripping out all the fantasy stuff. Uh, and uh, it worked and lots of people liked it. So for over a decade, they had this subgroup putting out all these, these different uh, supplements to that and other historical games. And it, it actually became like a feeder into historical miniatures as a whole, because um, if they announced like, hey, we're gonna do a book um, about um, you know, the Carthaginian Wars, all the small miniatures makers would have an idea when that was coming out. So they'd be like, oh, we have a new line of Carthaginian and Roman miniatures, you know, that would magically come out around the same time as that book. Um, and, uh, you know, they did like an Old West game, Legends of the Old West, and, you know, that that led to an uptick in interest in Old West skirmish games. Uh, and they ultimately did um, a, a Napoleonic game called um, Waterloo. Um, and, uh, that came out in like 2011 and then the year later Warhammer Historical was shut down. So that didn't really have a chance, but it was a nice intro to the period, um, kind of a, a precursor in the way it looked to uh, Black Powder. Um, and uh, the, actually the guy who designed that, Mark Latham, he designed that game Chosen Men that I talked about earlier. Um, so anyway, yes, there were, um, uh, lots of different factors in making wargaming like more popular again. Um, and certainly quarantine was uh, an excuse for lots of people to paint miniatures and, <laughs> you know, explore other aspects. Uh, also, you know, people were going to game online. Um, so they would use uh, things like tabletop simulator, which you can use to play board games and miniatures games with with a little bit of elbow grease so uh that i think that also has been helpful i want to talk just very briefly before we uh start looking at wrapping this up um about the community surrounding miniatures and particularly the historical focus because you mentioned that some people are very kind of particular about making sure that the facings are correct mm -hmm. there are others who you just want to you know play some games um so do you get people who come to this seeking to build their knowledge outwards 
from their engagement with miniatures. Do you find people sort of kicking against some of the tropes that exist? Or do you see that actually the the wargaming genre, because it's there to just enable people to have fun, it doesn't focus too much on the history. And so people take away what they wish to take away from it. And so in some cases that reinforces tropes, in other cases it kicks against it. Mm -hmm. um, well, yeah. Um, I mean, getting into historical miniatures games, like it's a huge rabbit hole that you can go into as deep as you want to. <laughs> um, so, you know, a lot of people will, will get into it, you know, because they know a little bit about a particular period. Um, and just the process of playing the games, like it encourages you to do research. Um, it encourages you to learn more deeply about different campaigns, different battles um, and things like that. Um, so um, it's good in that way uh, in that you will learn a lot. And I think probably everybody who um, uh, does historical miniatures gaming has, you know, at least like a shelf's worth of Osprey books on very specific titles, you know, like here's a book that's just about the French Imperial Guard and, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, uh, some of them, uh, you know, they do, they are interested in, in delving even deeper and, and, you know, perhaps challenging some, some wisdom. Um, war gamers also like they really love myth busting, you know, because it shows that, that they're deep enough into the history, you know, that they, they can tell you like what things are left over British propaganda from 200 years ago or, you know, or whatever. Um, and, um, uh, so that is is certainly a part of it. Um, the one of the downsides of the specialized knowledge um, that you gain is that it it can often lead to gatekeeping, um, which makes it harder to grow the hobby. So, you know, in the eighties when I first encountered Napoleonic miniatures games, it was very intimidating to me. You know, because it would be like a bunch of older guys around a huge table, um, you know, with these these big rule books and, you know, very, uh, well, in World War II terms, what we call like rivet counters, I guess it'd be like button counters, <laughs> Napoleonic stuff, you know, like very critical of the smallest mistakes in the miniatures or the painting or what have you. Um, and, you know, like the hobby started as something that was very white and very conservative. Um, and so, uh, and very male as well. And um, so that has often um, stopped people who might otherwise be interested from getting into it. Uh, so, you know, it's a bit of a double-edged sword in that way. Um, <laughs> if, if I may um, give you a little quote here. Um, so Donald Featherstone wrote this book in the late 80s uh, called Featherstone's Complete Wargaming, which is mostly a general book about wargaming and how to do it. But um, he interspersed that stuff with stories called Down at the Wargaming Club. Um, and one of those stories is about the dreadful time that a woman was got involved in his club and what a disaster that was. Shock, <laughs> horror. What are yeah. these ladies doing getting involved in Wargaming? They'll be wanting the vote next. It's, it's intolerable. <laughs> yeah. So uh, he plays this whole thing off for laughs. Like, she was a women's liberal, uh, you know, like... Where's my fainting couch and all this stuff? But by his own admission, she knew a lot about military history and Napoleonic gaming in particular. So like, this is what he writes when he talks about her first gaming at their club. 
Um, says, Sharon astonished us straight away by recognizing the battle as soon as she heard the narrative. Quote, that's Maida, 4th of uh, July, 1806, when Stuart beat Renier. Yes, that's a nice little battle with the red-coated Swiss being mistaken for Watville's men and Ross coming ashore with the 20th foot and winning the day. Yes, I'm going to enjoy this. You know, like, I wouldn't look at a board today and be like, ah, yes, that's the battle. So, <laughs> so, you know, it's like she had an interest, you know, but to hear Featherstone tell it, she like terrorized the club and they started losing members. But then thankfully, she went off to, uh, to found a women's football club and they were free of her. Hurrah. <laughs> so, I mean, that was very much the attitude back then. And thankfully, mm. you know, things have gotten better in more recent years, like Games Workshop actually makes a point of showing uh, women and, uh, you know, people who aren't necessarily white, like playing their games and stuff and their rule books and so on. Um, and, uh, you know, there's at least a wing of the hobby that tries to be more welcoming to people who traditionally have been frozen out of it. I mean, my position is if you're interested and you want a game, go ahead. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> the whole point is that we're all here to have fun, right? Um, that's, mm -hmm. that's quite an impressive quote there. Uh, I do like the idea of this, this woman coming in, just everybody's mouths hitting the floor. There's a woman? Surely yeah. not. We must clutch, yeah. our, clutch our tweed lapels in <laughs> disgust at the fact that a woman has got involved. It's, it's yeah. intolerable. Um, she would beat them regularly, you know. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> She's got Wherever better you are, Sharon, knowledge. I salute you. <laughs> Absolutely. She's got better historical knowledge. She's got a much better grasp of tactics. Yeah. I bet her miniature's probably better painted as well. I bet she had a better eye for detail. Um, we do sadly have to wrap this up. But before we do, I just wonder if you could say a little bit about sort of techniques and top tips for those who are starting out in terms of building these kits, creating and painting armies for the first time. What would you say to them? Uh, okay. Um, so painting miniatures, um, you know, it can certainly be intimidating. Um, you know, when you see some of the stuff that, that really the top people can produce, you're like, oh God, like, <laughs> you know, this, this is beyond me. Um, but, you know, there is something referred to as like the war gaming standard, um, which is, is not as beautiful as the top painters can do, but it doesn't actually matter because, um, you know, like 20 millimeter miniatures are a little over an inch high, 15 millimeter, even smaller. And so, you know, you're most of the time standing, you know, one to six feet away from the miniatures. So when you look at a unit, you know, like if the basic colors are blocked in right, like it looks good enough, you know? <laughs> so that's like a good place to start. Um, you know, uh, I mentioned those plastic miniatures, um, you know, which are, are kind of a cheap way to start. Um, and, uh, you know, just some very basic stuff, if you're gonna uh, get into minis and paint them, is like, um, if you're clipping out things, you wanna use a flat clipper um, so that the, the extra bit of sprue comes off cleanly. Uh, there's something called mold lines, which is where the two halves of a mold come together. And uh, because the seals aren't always super tight, there can be kind of a little line around the miniature. So you want to scrape those off and, and you want to undercoat. That's uh, an important step. So like when I started painting miniatures in the early 80s, um, 
like I didn't know anything about it. Like I bought testers model paints because that's what was in the hobby store. Um, I had no conception of undercoating, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, so, uh, so yeah, you know, people debate what colors to use, but you know, undercoating is good, makes the colors pop more. Um, yeah, I uh, horrified my other half the other day when, so Airfix gets a slightly different story because they're a plane and they're much bigger and you're dealing with block colors. Mm -hmm. um, but the horror on her face when I told her that I don't do a primer layer, I just oh. paint straight onto raw plastic because I've washed them beforehand. So I've got rid of the oils. And she, this was beyond her comprehension. Her. <laughs> um, she, she was not impressed in the slightest and then proceeded to educate me in oh, how I should no. be doing it. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I've been initiated into this idea <laughs> of you need a primer. Um, not convinced by the need for when you're dealing with a, a Spitfire that's sort of got a wingspan of about a foot wide. But when you're mm. dealing with miniatures, I completely see it because um, when I have to do the little fiddly bits um, on a 1 to 72 scale figure, um, which, as you say, is sort of less than an inch high. Mm -hmm. um, that's when you feel the need to make sure that the paint sticks properly. Yes, indeed. Um, yeah, and um, there, there's been a large like advancement in techniques as well over the years. Like, you know, back in the you know '80s, um, early '90s, you know, the sort of standard operating procedure was like, you know, after you you uh, you get your primer on, you do a base coat of all the colors. You do some washes to add depth, um, and then you do some highlighting on the peaks, you know, to make it pop more 3D and stuff. Um, but there's like all kinds of stuff that's happening now. People are doing what's called Xenophil undercoating, and this is when you you um, prime a miniature black, and then you use a white spray can and you decide on the angle that you're gonna um, spray that because what you're trying to simulate is the sun hitting the miniature from a particular time of day and you know so on so um so you then see these miniatures that are like you know they're still black on one part but then there's different gradations as the white paint has come in and when then when you paint over that those areas with the white paint are a little brighter and that, that's the sun you know like I've never done that. <laughs> that's, that's beyond me. Um, but, uh, you know, people uh, came in finally from the, the arts community with uh, applying things like color theory to painting miniatures games, which wasn't really part of it, um, you know, back, back when I was first doing things. Um, and then there, there have been some other innovations that went kind of from the ground up. Um, I don't know who it was, but somebody, I think in the 90s, um, they had the idea of, of dipping miniatures into Minwax, the floor cleaner sealer stuff. Um, and, right. uh, and then if you let it dry, um, the, the color of that would naturally shade the miniature and give it like a thick, like glossy coat, which you would then have to matte spray to get the gloss off but it was like a one a one dip process to do all the shading on your miniature um and uh people just started doing that you know buying <laughs> buying minwax to, uh, and eventually a company called army painter they just started to produce something called quick shade which was that same idea so you could get different 
colors of it, depending on how light or dark you want the shading to be. Then a few years ago, Games Workshop um, released something called contrast paints. Um, and those are designed so that uh, when you do your base coat, um, it's, it's both like a solid color, like, and um, a, um, uh, like a wash at the same time. So, you know, you can paint it and then like the recesses are dark and, you know, the high parts are light. So in, it basically replaces like three steps with one. So that has been a real help to people. Um, what I would really recommend if you're interested in learning more is like, go to YouTube. There's tons and tons of videos from painters about how to do it, lots of tips. Um, a lot of game stores and many conventions will have um, uh, classes on how to paint miniatures. Um, some of the, the top painters will do like master classes either online on YouTube or in person. You can go to some of the Games Workshop tournaments and you know you can sign up to spend hours with a, a real professional painter giving you tips and you know as you paint along. Um, so yeah, there's there's options for you and, and YouTube is really like a wealth of advice. Um, so Some top it. tips there for you folks, mm -hmm. if you're, and, and I hope that has been the case that, you know, you've listened to some of these and have been enthused to get involved with some of these different genres. Um, Chris, this has been a really interesting talk. I, I like doing these episodes on sort of the, the history of the public history behind mm -hmm. the Napoleonic era. And I this is why I wanted to do Wargaming Month, because I wanted something that looked very much at this particular genre that is public history and people may scoff at that and say but it's not you know designed to teach people the I don't know the the range of a, a brown best musket well great but you know that's that's not what your average person is after and I do like the way in which wargaming is a means of getting people involved in this period sparking that interest hopefully making them want to know a little bit more and you've given us a brilliant run through of the history behind the, the wargaming genre when it comes to Napoleonics. So thank you so much for your time this evening. Where can people find out more about you and what you're doing? Are you on Twitter? I am. Um, so it's uh, just my last name, at Premis, P-R-A-M-A-S. Um, and um, my company, Green Ronin, is Green Ronin Pub on Twitter. Um, and uh, I'm on Facebook as well. Um, uh, on my social media, like one of the things I did to um, uh, to not go bananas during quarantine uh, was I, I started doing what I called curated quarantine, where like every day I picked a game out of my collection and I wrote about it. Um, and it just started as like a lark, something that I thought I might do for a month or two, you know. Um, and uh, you know, the first entry was like a single tweet. Um, but then quarantine went on and on. And so ultimately, like I kept it up for a full year, 365 days, plus some bonus entries. Um, and, uh, and the entries just got longer and longer. Um, and that, so that became a whole thing, which I may publish through Green Renin at some point, um, I would need to revise it to go from social media posts, like to an actual book. Um, but anyway, um, uh, that, that was a time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Green Rooney also published a book called Hobby Games, The 100 Best, uh, which that came out in like 2008. 
Um, we got a bunch of designers to each pick another hobby game that they really liked and write about it. Uh, and so some of the old guard were still alive at that time. So we got essays from people like Gary Gygax, some of the old um, war game designers from the 70s and, and things like that. So that's an interesting book. Um, and I guess I would be remiss if I did not plug Green Renine's current Kickstarter. Uh, as long as I'm here, uh, we have a new role-playing game called Cthulhu Awakens, which is inspired by the mythos of H.P. Lovecraft, a horror writer from the 20s. Uh, it's like our take on things uh, using one of uh, the rules engines that I designed called the Adventure Game Engine. Um, and that is going till March 23rd. So uh, if you're interested in cosmic horror role-playing game, go to Kickstarter and look for Cthulhu Awakens. Fantastic. There's a lot for people to pick up there. Um, Chris, this has been brilliant. Genuinely, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a, a treat. Hello again, folks. A big thank you as ever for listening. And just a quick reminder that you can support the show by hitting the like button, sharing, subscribing so that you can find your way back for more and leave that review on Apple Podcasts if you can. You can find me on Twitter at ZWhiteHistory. Do get in touch with your thoughts and experiences. And as ever, a huge thank you to my Patreon supporters. This month is voted for by my patrons. It's one of the small things that I can do uh, as a very meagre way of trying to thank them for their um, input and, and support. Um, if you are interested in becoming a Patreon supporter, please check out the link in the description. Prices start from £1 a month. I know it's a big step to uh, go that extra mile uh, and start supporting the show, but if you are able to, it means a huge amount. Uh, there are different perks in each tier. Inevitably, the more that you're willing to chip in, the, the more the perks. The voting rights start at the commander um, tier, and the idea is that every few months... There is a vote on what the next theme will be, and then I produce an intense month's worth of content where I more or less double the output of the show um, to, to give you a really deep dive into that particular area. There are other perks and other tiers, including being able to request specific episodes on a topic that matters to you, and even one-to-one -one meetings with me. If all of that's not for you, and believe me, I completely understand that a regular subscription isn't people's thing, then there is another way, so you can leave one-off tips via Ko-fi, and the amount is completely up to you. Anything from, you know, 5p all the way up to, well, whatever you feel the, the episode and the, the series is worth. Um, I know it's a big ask, but bear in mind that it is through the, the tips and the subscriptions that this show keeps going. Uh, there are obviously overheads for production. There are all kinds of things, you know, new equipment that's needed, uh, and so on and so forth. And if I'm going to diversify, which is the aim, and to bring you content, particularly from battlefields, I do need your support. It's worth saying that, you know, all of this is done in effect for free. Um, I, I'm very pleased about the fact that there is no paywall behind it. So those of you who are able to dig into your pockets and show your appreciation in a financial manner, it does mean a huge amount. Um, and it does mean that I can plan for what is what will hopefully in time be a very exciting future for the show. A big thank you as ever to my Patreon supporters, my Emperor level patrons, Mark Stoos, JC Kaiser and Todd and Laird Campbell, my Marshall patrons, Matt Bone and Marcus Cribb, my Commander patrons, Ger Brown, Liam Telfer, Jane Davis, Bob Burnham and Michael Guest, my Mentioned in Dispatches Plus patron, Noah Fink, 
and my mentioned in dispatches patrons Alexandra Leon, Alistair Campbell Grieve, Andy Meakin, Beatrice de Graff, Brendan Teeling, Colin Fieldhouse, Ed Koss, Bruins Girl, Gareth Copeland, Jeff Maple, Hugh Brennan, Indiana Fats, James Bevan, Jim Deary, Jim Getz, John Haynes, Josh Keeney, Lucy Tatner, Lynn Dawson, Mark Dewhurst, Mark Anscombe, Rob Griffith, Rory Muir, Ross Flowers, Ryan Diamond, Rob Coquelin, and Stephen Coulson. So, what can you expect over the course of Wargaming Month? But we're going to explore all kinds of wargaming genres. We're going to look at board games, we're going to look at miniatures, we're going to look at the way in which tabletops work, we're going to look at the computer game as a genre, and look at the, the strengths and limitations of a specific example there. It's worth saying that the computer game stuff is over on the YouTube channel. There is a, an apology in advance about the quality of the content of the recording for that. There was a big issue with lag over the course of that recording and it couldn't be shot twice. We'd already spent about four hours um, of work on it uh, just in terms of recording um, by the point that we got a final product on that. But it'll the, the conversation that's tied into that will hopefully kind of spark your interest and you'll at least be able to get an idea of some of the things that we're talking about even though the footage is um, painfully jumpy. So do head over to the Napoleon Assist YouTube channel for that. So lots for you to look forward to. I'll be back very soon, but until then, I'm Zach White. This has been the Napoleon Assist. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe. And as always, thank you for listening. Thank you.